This week's topic is what I called in the title, The Langer Affair. How many people here are familiar with this, with the story? Diane has it? No? Okay, good. This is new. Excellent. Um, so, The Langer Affair roiled Israeli politics. It really created such turmoil in terms of the issue of religion and state in Israel in the 1960s and early 1970s. It was the perfect storm of Jewish law and, um, and the IDF and rabbinic authority versus government authority, the issue of um, political deals being made. It was a, it was a remarkable mess. And, uh, and really, I don't know what would happen if this came up today. And it could happen again today. It's not a sort of thing that was a one-shot deal. This could easily happen again. And so we're going to talk about what, what this was. But take a look at the first source I brought you. It's number 10 on these, uh, on these sheets. This is an article that appeared, la- uh, actually not last year, a few years ago, by Rabbi Eli Fisher writing in Israel about Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the, a major figure in this, uh, in this story. Israeli society ignores his legacy, Rabbi Gorin's legacy, at its own risk. In the unending tug-of-war between religion and state in Israel, he did the most to reimagine Jewish law to be compatible with the governing of a modern democratic state and to implement halakha as state law. This project neither started nor ended with Rabbi Gorin, though he was its most successful proponent. His legacy, therefore, pervades some of Israel's most contentious debates today, including the role of religion in the IDF and Jewish control over the Temple Mount. In other words, this issue that we're going to be talking about and what Rabbi Gorin tried to do to broker an agreement um, cut to the heart of the issue of religion and state in Israel. And that's why I wanted this as an item on our, uh, on our list of six events, because it speaks to the broader issue of religion and state in Israel. Society as you know, black and white, meaning you will find, I don't know what the numbers are, I wouldn't pretend that I knew, but you will find people at both poles. You will find people who will complain. Religion dominates the public sphere, and they're telling us what to do. They're telling us about selling comates on Passover. They're telling us about you know any number of issues you want to mention. And then you will find people who will decry the secularization of society, and they're taking religion out of the uh, out of the school curriculum. And the rabbis can't do anything, and the buses are running on Shabbat, and and you know they, who knows what again? Pick any pick your issue du jour. The um, you will find no end of people who will cry the sky is falling um, on both sides 
and they will have competing pictures of what's happening. And there are a few people who are in the middle who actually think, you know what, it's not really all one way, it's not all the other way. But yeah, you'll, you'll find people like those who, who stayed with you, absolutely. Let's take a look at the story, because this story is one of those that formed that, uh, that kind of polarization. In order to understand what happened, we need to know one simple law within Judaism, and that is the law of the mamzer. Mamzer, from a practical Jewish, as distinguished from the Yiddish word mamzer. I'm not, they, uh, they, uh, that word is a lot looser and has a whole bunch of other connotations. But from a simple, straight Jewish law perspective, mamzer refers to somebody who is born from a man and woman who face a serious prohibition against their marriage. Meaning that if they were to marry they would be in serious violation of Jewish law. Or to put it differently, Jewish law would actually invalidate the, uh, the marriage. You're talking about cases of incest, you're talking about cases of adultery. That's what you're, that's what you're basically referring to. And the rule is that a mamzer is limited. A child who is produced by such a union is limited in terms of marriage, is only able to marry either other mamzerim, those who are in this class, or somebody who converts to Judaism. That's the rule. I'm not discussing here what's behind this rule and people feeling terrible for the mamzer who did nothing wrong and yet is born into this position. It's a great discussion, but I, I will tell you right now, if we have that discussion, we're never going to end up discussing anything else. The, um, the, the question of it is a very old one within Judaism. The Talmud itself speaks about this and says, we're horrified, about, we're horrified at the, the effect it has on the child. But at the same time, it provides a deterrent for people who otherwise would have gone ahead with this, knowing this is what you're doing, knowing this is the child you are creating, the, um, maybe this will serve as a deterrent. There are other arguments that have been made back and forth about it. I'm not, again, I don't want to spend our time on that issue, because we have to discuss what happened with this law of Mamzer in the 1960s. And here we, we talk about a man and a woman. Her name is Chava Ginsberg. His name is Bolek Borakovsky. That will be on the final. Um, so, Chava came from a very observant Jewish family in Lukov, Poland. Um, I, uh, the way I've read it is Lukov, but it could be. It's Lakov. I don't know. The, I'm sorry? Lagev. Sorry? Lagev. Okay. Lagev. The, um, so, Chava, Chava Ginsburg comes from a very observant family. And she meets a non-Jewish man, Bolek Borakovsky, and they elope. And they get married in 1923 in a church in Lukov or Chava's parents are beside themselves. They're humiliated within the community. It's not what they wanted for their daughter, the whole bit. And they pressure Bolek to convert. In 1924, Bolek becomes known as Avraham. Abraham is the way he presents himself to people. He has a bris. He has a new marriage to Chava with a chuppah. And he begins doing things that Jews do. He goes to the synagogue. He, uh, he in general, is involved with the community. This is all pre-state. Chava's parents make aliyah in the early 1930s. And Bolek, Avraham, and Chava follow in 1932, 1933, somewhere around there. And they produce two children, Chava and Bolek. Uh, one in Poland and then one in, uh, in Israel. 
Fast forward to the early 1940s. Bullock and Chava separate. They don't have a get. There's no religious divorce. They simply separate. They stop living together. Chava begins seeing Yahushua Langer, Otto Langer, who is a Jew who's serving in the forces of the British Mandate. 1942, Chava and Yahushua get married in an observant Jewish ceremony by an established rabbi who had come over from Europe, Rabbi Yaakov Levitsky, a well-respected rabbi of, uh, of Givad Rambam. She gets married without the get from Avram Bolek Borakovsky. Correct, yes, Diane. Yes, they had a chuppah and everything. Chuppah and all. Ah, so how in the world does Rabbi Levinsky marry them off? I'm glad you asked. Take a look at source number 11. I gather the history for this from a variety of articles. One article was written by Rabbi Eitan Hankin, you may recall. He was the one who was murdered in the attack on Sukkot by terrorists a couple of years ago. They, uh, they attacked his family in the car. That's the story. So his grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Eliyahu Hankin, for those who are familiar with uh, Rabbanit Hankin of Nishmat, that's his mother. The, um, so his, uh, his grandfather, uh, Rabbi Yosef Eliyahu Hankin, was a leading authority in Jewish law at the time that all of this took place in the United States. And there was a lot of debate as to what position he took on the whole story. And uh, Rabbi Hankin, Jr., the grandson, wrote an article about it. As you see, it's a Hebrew article, but the English translation of the title is, This is Politics, Not Halakha. So, take a look at 11. The fact that Chava's marriage to the man who would father the brother and sister who we're going to get to, we haven't gone there yet, but Chava's marriage to Yehoshua Langer was arranged by a recognized rabbi should have been meaningful on the face of it. You look at that and say, well, obviously, if he married them off, it must all be kosher. At least as far as clarifying events, once they were no longer able to be clarified later on. Meaning, once I can't figure out what happened via eyewitnesses, at least I should rely on the fact that she got married by this Rabbi Levitsky, who was a known, respected rabbi. And I can assume that then that means whatever happened in her first marriage was cleared up with a get, or they decided Barakovsky wasn't Jewish, or whatever they decided, and now she's fine, and therefore her kids from her second marriage should be fine as well. Despite this, had Rabbi Levitsky known that Chava was presumed wedded to Barakovsky, it is hard to believe that he would have decided independently that she did not need to get without turning to a rabbinical court as is accepted practice. He says, it's hard to understand. Do you mean to tell me Rabbi Levitsky just married her off and didn't need to get, at least out of doubt, from the first marriage? He just went ahead and did it. Compare this with the claim of an article published after the story exploded that Chava testified before a rabbinical court in Petach Tikva in 1967 that when she came to marry a second time, when she went to marry Yoshua Langer, she did not bother to inform them that she was married. Oops. <laughs> she didn't tell them about the kids, didn't bring them to the wedding. Although... From the text itself, it is not clear whether she testified in general that I didn't say I had a husband, or she said specifically, I didn't tell the rabbi that I had a husband. Sometimes it's quoted one way, sometimes it's quoted the other way. It's not clear what she said and when she said it, which is the problem. There's so much here that is vague in this story. But the bottom line is, it seems, she doesn't tell Rabbi Levitsky about the first marriage. I would hope he asked, but I don't know. Sorry. 
How does he know about the children? Uh, why would she? So here we have our situation. She was married to this fellow Borokovsky, originally when he wasn't Jewish. He may have had a conversion, we're not sure. We know that there was, we know that he has a bris, we know that he goes by the name Avram, we know he's involved in the Jewish community, and we know that she marries him again with a chuppah. We don't know anything about who married them. So I'll tell you that must-haves in this story are hard to come by. So, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. No, you don't. But, the, but if you had a rabbi marry them, you would trust that things were done properly. You don't need a rabbi to do a wedding, but you need a rabbi for proof that someone looked into this. Yeah, no, understood. Understood. So... In terms of the first marriage, making sure there was a conversion. So Chava and Yoshua, sorry, at least. Yes, yes, he should. I don't know whether he asked or not. The testimony doesn't say. Yes, it is standard practice to ask this question, among other questions, about the ability to marry. So, for example, asking him if he's a Kohen, because that will limit who he's able to, uh, to marry. There are certain questions that are supposed to be asked. When I was a rabbi in Rhode Island, my first shul, I was, I was a kid, I was 24, 25 years old, and I had a couple call me from New York to say that they, um, they had met in Rhode Island years before in Newport and they wanted to get married in, uh, in, in Rhode Island. They had this vision of getting married in Rhode Island. They met in Newport, but I was in Providence, but they wanted to come to me to get married. And I always wondered thereafter whether there was something else going on that they assumed I was young enough and I wouldn't realize... And because sure enough, when I started asking questions, yes, she converted. Oh, well, who did the conversion? Well, I don't have the papers and so on and so forth. Now, Rabbi Levitsky had been around the block. He should know which questions to ask and how to deal with the responses. He's not a kid. Um, And so I would hope that that he knew what was going on. But let's see what happens. Chava and Yehoshua um, produced two kids. Chano, a son born in 1945, and Miriam, a daughter born in 1948. 1951, Bolak wants to get married to somebody else. He and Chava go to the Beit Din in Tel Aviv, and they receive a get. Now you have a problem. Because by getting a get in the Beit Din, right, in the rabbinical court, that means you're listed as having been married before to this fellow Borokovsky. Why else did you get a get? 1952, Yoshua Langer passes away. 1955, 1956, Chava comes to the Beit Din in Tel Aviv wanting to get permission to remarry. And at this point, because she's, you know, her husband is dead, she wants to get a document saying it's okay for her to remarry. Well, at that point, they put two and two together. They become aware that she has children from her marriage to Langer, and that she previously had the marriage to Borokovsky. And so the clerk dutifully writes down in the registry that Hanoch and, uh, and, and Miriam are Mamzerim because their mother had been married and then had married somebody else without a get. Well, fast forward again to 1966. I hope the chronology is somewhat straight here. In terms of they got, the original marriage was in the 1920s in Poland. Then they, uh, they came to Israel um, after having had 
a remarriage still in, uh, in Poland. They had the kids. Then she married somebody else without a get from the first one. And, the, uh, and she has kids from the second marriage in Israel. And she gets a get afterwards. The whole thing's out of order. She, gets, uh, she has a get afterwards from the first husband. So in 1966, Hanoch and Miriam are both serving in the IDF. They happen to be serving in the office of the defense minister, Moshe Dayan. That's going to matter, matter a great deal. Hanoch Langer meets a nice girl, and he wants to marry her. He goes to the Beit Din in Petach Tikva, wanting to be able to get married to her. Well, the court says, you're registered as Mamzeru, right? How are we supposed to marry you? Um, they weigh the possibility, though, that maybe Bolak never converted to Judaism. If Bolak isn't Jewish, who needs a get? You know, granted that the court gave them one at some point, because it's a piece of paper, they can do it, but maybe Bolak wasn't Jewish in the first place. No get was required. Bolak insists, I absolutely converted. I converted under Jewish law. Keep in mind the Jewish status of his children is at stake, right? Because they had two children in the first place. Right, the, um, that's true. Now, they'll be Jewish anyway because their mother is Jewish. Their general standing will be, uh, is at stake, but not their Jewish status. You are correct. So Bolek says, I converted. So they ask him, who was the rabbi? I don't know. Where are the witnesses to the conversion? I don't know. Do you have any documentation? No. But I put on tefillin every day and I keep Shabbos. That's what he says. They cross-examine him. How do you put on tefillin? He knows that they're put on in the morning, but he can't demonstrate how to put it on. They ask him, you say you keep Shabbos. You go to shul Friday night? Yes, sometimes. They start him on the sentence, Dodi. He can't finish the sentence. They start him on the sentence, Shema Yisrael. He finishes it with the wrong words. His associates are brought into court to testify, and they say they, they've eaten pork with him, they've seen him go to church. Others, though, who he brings testify that he is an active Jew. Now, in today's world, frankly, this can happen in the life of a Jew. And all of this can, can be consistent. But at the time, right, keep in mind, this is going on in 1966, the court says, you know, we're really close to saying he's not Jewish, and therefore no get was needed, and therefore the kids are fine, but they can't quite pull the trigger on it. They, um, they, they're not willing to reverse the decision that the children are Mam Zerim, Diane. He's living in Israel, correct. And so, if he wasn't Jewish, would that affect his status as an Israeli? No. No, he, has, he was living there pre-state. He's, he is, he's a citizen. He's still a citizen, yeah. Well, keep in mind that he and, uh, and Chava got divorced at some point. I don't know the feelings between them at this stage, and I don't know if that plays into it. But when they go to get later, yeah. they have to produce a ketubah. Therefore... So they don't necessarily need to produce a ketubah in order to receive a get. 
No, we do ask for it. Meaning that when someone comes to get a get, the, get, the ketubah is requested. And usually what they'll do is they'll cut through the witnesses' signatures so the ketubah can't be used in a further proceeding as proof that they're married or as a way to claim financial benefits and so on. But the get can happen without the ketubah being present. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether he was religious or not. He's Jewish. I don't know. I don't know. He's dead before all of this happens. He's dead for ten years before before this whole story plays out in the media. So the case is appealed. There's a high court of appeals in Jerusalem with some very prominent judges on it. One judge was Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, who would go on to be chief Ashkenazi rabbi of the state of Israel, and a very serious name. Another judge on it was Rabbi Yosef Shalom el-Yashiv, who would go on to be known as the leader of the Haredi community uh, in Israel for many years. They're both on this rabbinical court at the same time serving together and at the time, keep in mind because I heard people groan once I said that about Rabbi Yashiv. at the time there was no bitterness between them at the time they were sitting and serving on a rabbinical court recognized by the state of Israel part of the infrastructure together and that is a very important point to remember as we go through this there's no rift at this stage in the, uh, in the history there was a third rabbi on the court. He actually was Sephardic, and I'm blanking on the, uh, the name right now. I think it's Rahugi, I think. But I'm not 100% sure. So one judge, Rabbi Yisraeli, says, you know what? The evidence against Bolak Borokovsky's Jewish status is strong enough. I think I would let them get married. I think I would go with it. Rabbi Eliashiv said, not necessarily. For reasons we're going to come back to, he says, the standard for proof that somebody is Jewish is that they act in the way that Jews in their community act. And in their community, where they are living, it's consistent that he goes to the synagogue sometimes, he knows vaguely about tefillin, but he also eats treif. That's actually, that's, that's the norm, where he lives, and therefore you can't take his religious inadequacies as a demonstration that he's not Jewish. Well, in the end, the court decides not to overturn the original decision that they are mamzerim. Rabbi Yovadia Yosef is brought into the case, and he supports their decision. There are more appeals. It goes back and forth and around and around. Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, chief rabbi of the IDF, files arguments on their behalf, but ultimately it goes nowhere until source number 12. This is an article from Ma'ariv from 1971 about the case. In another hearing, their request was again rejected, the request of Hanoch Langer and his sister Miriam. Their request was again rejected. And again, the case was passed to Jerusalem because of the appeal of the lawyer Modai. The verdict again did not change in Jerusalem. At this stage, the two send a letter to the Minister of Defense, to Moshe Dayan, asking him to intervene as this is a matter of lies, Dinayna Pashot. Israeli Chief Rabbi Nisim, the Sephardic Chief Rabbi at the time, then became involved as a result of Mr. Dayan's intervention. But even then, the matter did not change. Only after the Minister of Defense declared at a government meeting that if the problem were not solved, then he would put on the government table a proposal for a law of civil marriage, did the wheels start to turn much faster. Because now you have a problem. This is always going to be the problem. How far are 
you able to go without triggering a reaction that is going to be much stronger? And that's really what this is about. If they're going to insist that they're mamzerim, then the answer will be, let's create the possibility of civil marriage. So they can't get married Jewishly. So let them get married civilly. At least four cases of psuleihus, as it's called in Hebrew, people whose lineage disqualifies them from marrying. So let them have that option, as opposed to having to do what everybody today does, which is go to Cyprus. Let them be able to have a, uh, a civil marriage here. And there's a groundswell of support for it. Prime Minister Golda Meir gets involved. There's a minister of Knesset who actually drafts a civil marriage bill um, at this uh, at this point. All the while, Bullock, you know, is uh, is insisting, of course, I'm a Jew. Why are you challenging my Jewishness? Well, the story wasn't complicated enough. There's another twist because in 1972 they have elections for the chief rabbi position. The outgoing chief rabbi, uh, chief Ashkenazi rabbi, Rabbi Yisr Yehuda Unterman, uh, is, uh, is running for re-election. The way election of chief rabbis work is that you, you didn't have it. It wasn't open for the country to elect. There's a body of people who are selected to represent different sectors of Jewish society, of Israeli society, and they are supposed to elect the, uh, the chief rabbi. So, the, um, so Rabbi Unterman is up for re-election as the incumbent, and Rabbi Shlomo Gorin of the IDF is running against him. There's activism on both sides. It was, the, it was alleged that the religious Zionists within the government had altered the, the voting body to favor Rabbi Gorin. The Haredi community issued public decrees against Rabbi Gorin, claiming he cut a deal with voters, that he would allow the Langers to marry if he were elected. Rabbi Gorin is elected. Rabbi Gorin wins and becomes the chief rabbi, uh, the chief Ashkenazi rabbi of the uh, of the state of Israel. And sure enough, he puts together a court of nine or ten, it's not clear, leading rabbis. He does not disclose their names. The only name that is known is his name. But he says they were all leaders, heads of rabbinical courts, and so on, to review the evidence. The names of the others are hidden. And he comes out with a conclusion that the Langers are not Mamzerim. I'm going to briefly give you the end of this story now. We're going to come back to this at the start next week. But the, um, but the, he says they are allowed to remarry. The court concludes that they can remarry, and they do remarry. They not remarry, they get married. The fallout is tremendous. The Haredi community says anything Rabbi Gorin says cannot be listened to. The, uh, we reject all of his rulings. Rabbi Yosef Shalom El Yashiv leaves the Court of Appeals and leaves in general the entire Zionist camp. And that's where the rift begins between them is over this specific case. You have harsh public responses against Rabbi Gorin, including from names who people generally consider moderate. Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach in Israel, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York, both come out very strongly against Rabbi Gorin. And here I'll end with a very fascinating concluding note. A year later, Borokovsky goes back to the secular courts and gets himself certified as Jewish. So now, he's Jewish, but his wife didn't need to get it. 
So, you see why this bothers people. You start to see why this case became such a big deal. So what I want to talk about next time when we conclude this is what the arguments were on both sides regarding the conversion, but more, what was Rabbi Gorin thinking? when he went so far in this, really against the weight of basically every other major rabbinic name with the possible exclusion of Rabbi Yisraeli uh, on this. So, God willing, we will pick up with this next week, and then we go into the UN resolution of Zionism equals racism. So, frying pan and fire.